I often ask myself, what do we as Christians have that is so good that it's a shame that the world has to live without it? The answer, I believe, is the good news about Jesus, and that is worth sharing. This is Adam Hill, minister of the Word at Rochester Church of Christ, and I pray that today's message shares that good news and that you are richly blessed by it. The Bible says, from Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to glorify you. We thank you that you are our shepherd, that we lack nothing that you provide for us faithfully, that you restore us, that you guide us, that you walk with us even through the darkest valleys of life, that you are with us and you bring us comfort. By your guidance and your discipline, you bring us comfort. And God, you prepare for us a table to restore us, to center us, to commune with us. There in the midst of all of life's hardship, you prepare for us a table. God, you are good and you love us. And we long to be with you forever. God, may we be at your table present with you now. Speak, Father, for your children are listening. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. As we've discussed for the last two weeks... Uh, Jesus, your good shepherd, has prepared a table for you in the presence of your enemies. And whenever we invite the enemy to have a seat at that table, we allow him to work his way into a dinner party that belongs to us and God alone. And when that happens, he does this interesting thing. He starts to eat your lunch. See what I did there? He starts to devour the abundant life that is meant for you. And he steers you towards sin and death, dominating your mind and stealing your peace, your effectiveness, your confidence, and your happiness. You see, you were created in the image of God. You are, according to Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10, God's workmanship. The word there means literally God's masterpiece. That you are God's masterpiece. 
You are a child of the king, and God wants to set you free from anything that's holding you back. Anything that's holding you back from him. Anything that's holding you back from his calling for your life. Now is a great time to ask ourselves this question. Ask yourself this question for a moment. How is the enemy fighting the battle for my mind? What strategy is the enemy using on me? How is this fight happening and what what do I need to do to make sure that I am trusting in God so that he can protect me and win the battle for my mind. And today I want to talk about the spiral of sin a little bit. Because there's a spiral to the way sin works in our life. And I believe it starts with temptation. Now if you've read James chapter 1 verses 13 to 15. You know that this is kind of what James is saying when he says this. He says when tempted. This is James 1 13 through 15. When tempted no one should say God is tempting me. For God can't be tempted by evil nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. Now let's be real. Sin can be enticing. It can look good at first. Okay, it it can even look helpful. I don't know what to do. Maybe I should just lie. That could actually work. It looks helpful at first. It can be enticing. The devil rarely rolls through your door, almost never rolls through your door and, and, and announces how he's going to destroy you. He doesn't lay out a PowerPoint presentation and say, this is the way that I plan to ruin your life. Sound good? No, instead, he entices us. We're tempted when, we're, when we are dragged away and enticed. We're lured. Have you ever been fishing? Now, I want to be clear about this. I don't, I, I didn't ask, have you ever gone and drank near or in a boat? <laughs> because I know a lot of people that that's what they mean when they're like, I went fishing. What'd you catch? Nothing. Okay, I know what you did that day. No, I'm talking about real fishing. Like people who are serious about it. Have they ever, have you ever gone out with someone who was really serious about it? And all of a sudden you realize there's a lot less conversation than you thought was going to happen. You never would hop into the boat, take it out to the middle of the lake, pull out a bullhorn, and start, attention, hey you fish, listen up. Here in a moment, I'm going to throw a razor sharp hook overboard, and I want you to bite it. In fact, I want you to feel like you need to bite it. And when you do, I'm going to jerk that hook really hard. And then I'm going to reel you in and then yank that hook out with pliers. Now the hook has a barb on the end. Your mouth's going to be a mess. And then I'm going to throw you in my cooler. And when I get back to the shore, I'm going to take you out of that cooler. I'm going to scrape your scales off. And then I'm going to fry you in a pan with butter. You got the plan? Good. Let's get to it. 
That is not ever how you're going to fish. When you go fishing, if you go real fishing, you get crafty. You check the temperature. You go fishing with a person who's a real fisher person, and they start telling you about wind speed and direction. And you're like, what's that? I've never worried about the wind. They start talking about the lay of the shadow on the water. You consult other fishermen when you go fishing. You find out what bait will be the best bait for this time of year, for this kind of water, for this kind of fish. The hook, by the way, is never obvious when you're fishing. Never scary. Lures. Lures, though, are bright and shiny. And they're pretty. And they're dazzling. And they spin. And they announce things like, here's a free lunch. And they say, hey, you should come over here. There's a really cool thing over here. You see, a fisherman wants to mesmerize the fish. He wants to tantalize the fish. He wants, he wants to lure, he, he wants to make the fish pursue the hook. And the way you do that is not by advertising the hook, but it's by showing a beautiful lure. And the fish comes in with an open mouth and open eyes. You never advertise the hook, you advertise the reward. The devil holds the fishing pole. We must constantly be on guard against the devil's lures. Because when temptation or harmful thoughts come our way, they probably will not look bad, especially not at first. Initially, sin promises something good. Offers a solution and guarantees relief. And all of it is lies. See, the enemy works in our life by luring and lying. And he promises things he can't fulfill. He challenges God's truth and then he attacks God's character and intentions. And he usually targets your basic human needs and desires. Acceptance. Worth. Satisfaction. Fulfillment. Happiness. Those are things you want. Those are things that you rightfully want. And he's going to target those. We're lured and enticed by our own desires. The enemy has a plan for your life. And that plan is to bury you. He wants to kill your dreams. He wants to bury the purpose that God has placed inside of you. He wants to steal your sense of self-worth and your confidence and your hope. He wants to destroy your marriage and erode your relationship with your children. He wants to ruin your reputation and slander Christ's name in the process. He's got all kinds of time and no mercy. And the way he's going to start you down this road of destruction is by putting a thought into your mind that is contrary to God's will for your life. He's going to tempt you by putting a thought in your mind that is contrary to God's will for your life. He's going to use our own desires against us and let them entice us away from God. Now I want to be clear. Being tempted is not the same thing as sinning. 
Jesus was tempted, and yet he did not sin. Okay, the problem isn't that a thought jumped into my head that was harmful or unhealthy for me. The problem is what I do with it. Okay, do I immediately dismiss it and say, that's not from God, or do I entertain the idea? That's the question. Because when I entertain the idea, that's when I am led astray. That's when I'm enticed into that. When a sinful thought enters our mind, you have a choice. Discard it or entertain it. When you entertain it, the devil pulls a chair up to your table. This is why the promise like the one given in Romans 12 verse 2 that talks about the renewing of our mind be transformed by the renewing of your mind, then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. That's why that's such an important idea. That's why it's such an important promise so that our mind can be renewed to know what God's will is. So that if we get a thought that we know doesn't come from God, we can discard it, not entertain it. Okay, because when we allow it to have space, we're letting the enemy mislead us. Because if you entertain harmful thoughts, sinful thoughts for too long, you'll begin to lose the battle for your mind. What almost always happens to us is that once we give space in our minds to harmful ideas, they lead us to harmful actions. Or we begin to approve of the harmful thing, slowly warming up to sin. Now... Often we leave this part out at church. But the truth is that those harmful ideas don't always seem harmful. They seem fun. And they seem pleasurable. And you know what? This is the real deal. Sin can be pleasurable. For a time. You see, the, the struggle with sin is that, that the, the, the pleasures of sin can be real, but they are fleeting. Sin does not provide lasting pleasure. It provides fleeting pleasure. They're not pleasures that honor God. Sinful pleasure doesn't provide peace or fulfillment. Instead, it leads to harm, separation, disappointment, and shame. See, and this is how the spiral works. Okay, we started, started out feeling some sort of loss or experiencing some sort of trouble. We didn't feel great, so we sought relief. Now, when we sought relief, the enemy was nearby. And the enemy had a plan and moved quickly. And so, tempted us. Temptation. We saw the forbidden fruit for what it was. Fruit didn't look bad, though. We entertained the idea of the fruit. We molded over. We wondered why, why God withheld from us that fruit in the first place. So then we acted on our thoughts, and we bit into the fruit, and we sinned. And the fruit tasted good for one moment. But as that bite slid down our gullet, we realized that we were naked. And shame sets in. 
Temptation leads to sin, leads to shame. This is how the spiral's working. And then we end up, guess what? We're ashamed, and so we're right back where we started, feeling bad for some sort of loss. We're experiencing some kind of trouble. We're not feeling great. Only now, that misery is compounded by shame. We feel worse than we did before. And, 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 and what we're tempted to do is then medicate it again. By, and then there's the enemy again saying, you know what made you feel good last time? And it just keeps spiraling. And if you're feeling lousy and you sin in an attempt to feel better... You will not feel better. Whatever pain you're feeling now will still be there in the morning, only shame will be with it. And in that moment of misery, when shame kicks in, one more turn of the spiral usually occurs. And after sin happens and we're feeling miserable and ashamed, the enemy shifts from being your enticer, from being the one promising you things, to becoming your accuser. And being the one condemning you for what you chose. The enemy lays it on. Boy, if ever there was a Christian who didn't get it, it's you. You are hopeless. You are a complete failure. You are so far gone that even if you could get back and you can't, God wouldn't want someone like you back. And the saddest part is, even though we know the enemy just turned on us, went from being our friend to being our accuser, even though we saw it happen, we feel so much shame and guilt that we start to agree. Yeah, that's probably true. If you let the enemy accuse you of sin, you are going to see him condemn you with his next breath. You see, this is a huge difference between God and Satan. Satan, your enemy, will condemn you. God will convict you. That when it comes to sin, Satan will condemn you. God will convict you. Condemnation comes from a place of hate. Conviction comes from a place of love. Condemnation comes from guilt. Conviction is born of grace. Condemnation leads you to conceal your sin. I'm afraid that I'm going to be condemned, so I'm going to hide what I'm doing and not tell anyone about the sin in my life. Conviction urges you to confess your sin. I need to get this out so that it can stop. Condemnation results in remorse, in you feeling bad. Conviction is a call for you to repent. To not just feel bad, but to turn around and go a different direction. Condemnation is a path to future failure. Conviction is the way to real change. I want to be clear, God does not take our sin neutrally. God will convict us of our shortcomings and our sin because he cares about us. 
He loves us so much that he doesn't want to let us continue down a harmful path. And God longs to restore us. And the goal of conviction is not to make you feel bad. The goal of conviction is for you to surrender. The goal of conviction is not so that you'll redouble your efforts. Man, I feel bad about doing that. I'm going to try even harder not to do it. And pretty soon you become like that batter in baseball who's going up to the plate saying, don't strike out. Let me tell you what that guy's going to do nine out of ten times. Strike out. Because that's what he's focused on. It's the same way when you look at the rule. God sets a rule and you get as close to the rule as you can because that's how we think of righteousness. We draw a line in the sand and say over there that's sin and over there is God. And God's will for me said don't cross this line. So I'm going to get as close to that line as I can without going over it. And somehow think that that's what's pleasing God. I'm looking at that rule so much that I'm not looking at God. The goal is for me to be as close to God as I can. So that that rule doesn't even come into my mind. I'm not trying to redouble my efforts not to sin. The goal of conviction is to bring me to a point of surrender. So that I say, God, I can't beat this sin. But you have. In Jesus Christ, you've already claimed victory over the sin. When Jesus returns, he's not going to be returning to deal with sin again. He's already defeated sin. When Jesus returns, it's victory upon victory. And you can have that victory with him if you're with him. And so the goal of conviction in our heart is surrender. Did you know... That quicksand is real. Now, you all have seen the meme. It it is admittedly not as much of a problem as I thought it was going to be in life. Based upon cartoons in my childhood. It was waiting around every corner for us. It, It is not a big problem in life. But it's real. And people and things actually get caught in it. The spongy ground starts to give way and all of a sudden this thing happens where the sand begins to give way and you begin to sink farther and farther in it. And okay, it's kind of, you know how the worst, the worst thing to do in that moment? Struggle. Struggle. And so you keep working yourself down. Now, here's what I've learned about quicksand because I've been doing a little research. It almost never swallows you completely. You see, physics doesn't allow it to do that. That the, the weight that you're putting into it and the way that the sand displacement works, eventually it's going to run into a jam where it can't go any farther down, but you can't pull up. And so it locks in. And so you're locked into place, unable to escape. There are people who die in quicksand, not from suffocation, but from exhaustion. And from being exposed. They die because they wear themselves out trying to escape. When it comes to fighting sin, the same kind of thing can happen to us. You see, you have victory in Christ. Jesus has already won. He's seated in the place of victory at the right hand of God, Hebrews 12, 2. And when eternity unfolds, he's not going to have to deal with sin again. He's the ultimate victor. He's won this victory and you have access to it. 
You are freed from the quicksand of sin because you have been given a new identity. Sin, temptation, and a poor thought life don't need to hold you down. The power to live freely comes from your close association with Jesus and his victory. The battle isn't won because the pressure lifts. The battle isn't won because the circumstances change. The battle is won because of who walks through the valleys with me. The battle is won because of who sits at the table with me, even when I'm surrounded by my troubles. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that I am a new creation. Galatians 3.26-28 says that I am clothed with Christ. Colossians 3.3 says that my life is hidden with Christ. Ephesians 2.6 says that God raised me up with Christ and has seated me with him in the heavenly realms. 1 Corinthians 15.57 says that God is deserving of my thanks for he has given me victory through my Lord Jesus Christ. Y'all can say amen any time you start to believe it. You see, when temptation threatens us, we, we become free by first changing our perspectives. That instead of floundering, or floundering around in the quicksand of sin and the temptation for the rest of our lives, we change how we think. We take responsibility for what happens in our minds and we remind ourselves, I am in Christ and Christ is in me. I am a new creation. Your new mindset tells you God is faithful. You remind yourself of this truth. You remind yourself again, and you remind yourself again, and you remind yourself again, and the constant reminding begins to change the old patterns that led you to defeat. Because sin is not the end of your story anymore. Your God is faithful and provides a way out of temptation. That you can even walk through dark valleys and sit in the presence of your enemies with a different way of thinking because 1 John 5, 4 tells you that everyone who's born of God overcomes the world. Amen. Finally, we're starting to show up. We're not simply sinners saved by grace. We are not simply beggars helping other beggars find bread. We are not simply coming to the cross with nothing to offer. Now that may have been the starting point, but that's not you now. That's not who we are in Christ. You see, we are equal parts, Ephesians 2 and 2 Corinthians 5. Here's what I mean. Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9 says that I'm a sinner saved by grace. That's true, amen? But 2 Corinthians 5, 17 adds that I'm now a brand new creation. I'm not the same old sinner I was. I'm a new creation. And that's true too, amen? I'm a sinner saved by grace, but I'm no longer what I was. I'm something new now, and I have the power of God's resurrection at work in me through His Spirit. And yes, even after being newly created, I'll still have the capacity to sin. But sinner is no longer my identity. I was crucified with Christ, so I don't have to live in his death, or so I don't have to live that way anymore. The life I live, I now live by faith because Christ lives in me, Galatians 2.20. When you become a believer, you're baptized into Christ. You participate in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. 
So that just as Christ was raised to new life, so you too are raised to walk in newness of life, Romans 6, 4. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 says that, 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 that since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. When those thoughts come into your mind, don't entertain them. You cast them off. Throw it off. And the way you throw it off, look at this. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. When the thought comes into your mind that is harmful and sinful, when that temptation shows up, don't look at it. Look at Jesus. It's going to be really hard for the devil to convince you that you're worthless when you're looking into the eyes of Jesus who's saying, I love you and I gave my life for you. It's going to be really hard for you to fall prey to Satan's lies when the truth is staring you in the face. is part of changing the way we think. Go back to Psalms 23 and John 10, the good shepherd. Imagine life as a sheep with your good shepherd. God promises to guide you. And just as a sheep can learn to recognize the voice of their shepherd, you're given the ability to hear the voice of Christ. You can rest in the shepherd's care. You can move in step with the shepherd and you live closely with Jesus. You discover that you can trust God. You can look back on your life and see the times that he carried you, the times he pulled you close, the times he kept you from danger, the times he navigated you through. Intimacy with God is the one true way to be fulfilled. And by keeping your eyes on Christ, you keep the enemy away from the table that God has prepared for you. Has God ever been more to you than a command not to sin? Is he larger than a ticket to heaven when we die? It is good that we are saved from sin. Amen. And it is good that we are going to spend eternity with God. Amen. Yet beyond that truth, do you realize that God is greatly interested in you knowing him right now, here, today, long before you die? How well do you actually know God? Can you go ahead and bring your team up? And I want to ask the prayer team to come up. When you're on the pathway to knowing God... It means you set your heart, your purpose, and your mind in that direction. And when you learn his word, you get to know him and his character. And when you walk with him in continual prayer, you learn his ways. And his words and his ways and his character fulfill the needs in your life. Do you have a need for worth, for significance? For purpose, for love, for acceptance, for satisfaction, for peace, for the closest kind of companionship, for a calm in the midst of the storm. Do you have needs for those? Jesus fulfills those needs. Nothing can satisfy your heart like God. And nothing keeps you from sin better than keeping your eyes on Christ. 
When you walk with God, you discover your true identity, your worth, and your purpose. This is an odd way to think about this, but have you ever considered the blessings of living on this side of Eden? I mean, I get it. On the one hand, we live in this sin-soaked, fallen, corrupted world that is not the way God intended creation to be. But we also live, and, and, and if you hear me say anything, I need you to focus here now. I need, I need you to hear me say this. We live with the knowledge of just how far God Almighty will go for us. Because we live after Eden, we live with the knowledge of just how far God will go for us. That we have death, burial, and resurrection as our story. That we can point to the cross and say, God is not holding out on me. This is what God's heart is like. That God loved me so much that he sent his son to take away the sins of the world at such great cost. That's a heart that scales any mountain. That's a heart that kicks through any door. That's a heart that relentlessly pursues us wherever we go. Because God will do anything to reach me with his love. Amen? Amen. Including sending his only beloved son to the cross and raising him again. And he can do it in you. If you would be his, if you would give your life to him, then I want you to come now. I want you to talk with one of the prayer team. I want you to come see me. We're going to baptize you in the Christ today. If you would be his and you need prayer, if you are his and you say, I need, I need someone praying for me, we want to pray for you. I want you to come now. If you have questions and want to study the Bible, we want to study with you. I want you to come now. Don't let the enemy convince you to not respond. Come now while we stand and we sing together. A quick confession here. Truth be told, as I preach, I'm often preaching at myself. I'm saying what I need to be reminded of. Thankfully, my struggles and questions are not just mine. It turns out that being human brings some pretty universal challenges to all of us. I am so thankful for the good news of Jesus Christ. It has never let me down. I pray that today's message blessed you with the good news. Remember, you are loved and chosen.